Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a former left-handed pitcher who enjoyed a 22-year career in the major leagues. He was a two-time All-Star selection, was named National League Comeback Player of the Year in 1980, was a member of the Los Angeles Dodgers 1981 World Championship team. He won 220 games with a career-earned run average of 3.64, 1,907 strikeouts while pitching for the Cardinals, Astros, Pirates, Dodgers, Reds, Angels, White Sox, and Milwaukee Brewers. He pitched a no-hitter for the Dodgers on June 27, 1980 against the San Francisco Giants. He is one of only 29 players in Major League history to play in four different decades. It is a pleasure to welcome one of the winningest left-handers in Major League history, Jerry Royce to WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Jerry. Hey, Mark. How you doing? We're doing great this Sunday. Even, of course, anytime we get to speak baseball with a guy who, who's done it all, it's always a good night. Uh, you know, it's interesting because you're drafted by your hometown team in the second round of the 1967 Major League Baseball draft by the Cardinals after graduating from Mittenauer High School in Overland, Missouri. One of your high school teammates was the son of a Cardinals farm director, George Sylvie. How much of a role did that connection play in the Cardinals taking you? And what do you remember most about draft day? Who contacted you to let you know that you were a Cardinal? Well, we have to go all the way back well, over 50 years ago. <laughs> and... You know, the Cardinals weren't in the forefront as far as teams that showed a lot of interest. Uh, there were scouts, and I can't remember who they were at this point. My memory uh, is gone a little bit as far as that's concerned. But there were other teams that were there. I recognized them on a, on a basis, a regular basis, whenever I pitched. The Cardinals were more or less in the background. Now, I never asked uh, Sylvie's son, uh, uh, I'm going to forget his name, Tim, I think it was, uh, about that, and I and, and I, I never said anything to him about the Cardinals, their interest or anything. I was more concerned on graduating and winning some ball games. So when I heard that the Cardinals drafted me in the second round, I was just a bit surprised because they didn't show a great deal of interest. Now, you then, after the draft, you play at three levels for the Cardinals that year. First for George Kissel for the Gulf Coast Cardinals, and Jack Kroll for the Cedar Rapids Cardinals. Then you get to play for the left-handed pitcher who had the most wins of any lefty in Major League Baseball in Warren Spahn. I have to think that that's both somewhat intimidating, but also an amazing opportunity. What did you learn from your time with him? Well, I was there for just a week, so uh, and it was in AAA, and I was with guys who had already had some big league experience, and I was only three, maybe four months out of high school. So when you're teammates with guys who have been in the big leagues, whose baseball cards you collected not more than a year or so ago, uh, it's, it's not intimidating. It's just one of those moments where it's surreal. And you ask, how did I get here, and how did it happen so fast? Uh, I think a lot of it had to do with being in the right place at the right time. You, know, you mentioned about being on a team with guys that you collected their baseball cards with. Your September call-up in 1969 as a 20-year-old, the manager of the Cardinals at that point is in his 20th year in that organization. He's fifth year as a manager. Being from the area, how aware of Red Shandy's history with the Cardinals were you? And what did having him as your first major league manager mean to your foundation as a pro? Yeah, boy, that's a big question. We can do a whole program just <laughs> on that. 
Uh, I wrote a book report on Red Cheney's when I was in high school. No way. Yeah. Wow. No, I, I think there was a book or there was something where I got a bunch of research, and you know, I knew his background pretty well from writing a book report. So uh, I didn't know Red. Red didn't know me. Uh, but when I walked into spring training as a 19-year-old in 1969, I just took a look around. I knew all those guys, but I knew them because of the backs of the baseball cards. And as well as listening to Harry Carey, Jack Buck, Joe Garagiola on the radio, uh, I knew pretty much the Cardinals' history and how each and every one of them got there. So, you know, for me, it was more than just being a fan that walked in. There was somebody who had a locker right next to or right, ne- or right between a few of them and wore the same uniform as they did. Yeah, you, you mentioned the fact that you know them from the back of your baseball card. So I have to, you know, what was it like the first time you saw yourself on a Topps baseball card? You know, that, that was interesting. Um, that was in 1970, in the 1970 series. So I, I took a look at it, and I said, you know, this is nice. And I shared it with Lee Ron Lee, who was another up-and-coming star. Uh, Lee Ron eventually went to San Diego and then had a great career over in Japan. But Leron and I, still friends, we haven't spoken for a while. Uh, we, we kid around about it, and we're just glad that we both were on a baseball card. And, you know, for me, it was one of those things, uh, going back to the days when I sat outside the drugstore, when I spent my nickel or six cents on a pack of cards and couldn't wait to tear open the, uh, that uh, cover and see who I got. Then throw away the gum because I knew I'd see the dentist after trying to chew that. So, you know, I had the collection, just like other kids of that era. And here I am within a few years having my own baseball card. But I'll tell you a postscript about it. It's sometime during the summer this year, I got in contact with Topps. Uh, there was an auction on eBay by Topps Vault, and that's a subsidiary of the baseball card company. And they're selling off the original transparencies, negatives, and slides used in the production of the baseball cards. So I won the auction, and then I sent an email to uh, the people at Topps Vault and said, this is my history. What can we do about me uh, securing all of the pictures and all of the transparencies that you have in your collection? So we exchanged emails, negotiated a bit, and I ended up purchasing many of the original transparencies that were used in the baseball cards over my entire career, including the transparency that was used in my first baseball card. How awesome is that? Yeah, and New York fans, since we are New York based, you mentioned Leron Lee. They remember him well as a guy that always came up in clutch situations as a pinch hitter against the Mets and right. just always killed us, killed us for sure. So you, you, you mentioned that you knew about Red Chandies, you knew about all, all these players the second you walked into that locker room. But you're 20 years old, you walk into a locker room that had Bob Gibson, Steve Carlton, Nelson Bryles, Mudcat Grant. Any of those guys in particular take you under their wing and mentor you that first season? Actually, I was 19. I hadn't turned 20 yet, and it was my first spring training. So, uh, yeah, the guys, were, you know, remember they had just come off of winning the World Series in 67 and losing in seven games to the Tigers in 68. So uh, there was a lot of people following the ball club because they were pennant winners, and they wanted in, uh, the question was, can the Cardinals three-peat? But some of the production fell off in 68, 
plus there was a labor situation that were that was developing and among the owners of the uh, one the cardinals august bush was a hawk and didn't want to give in to what he considered were excessive demands on the part of the players uh, he always believed that he treated his players right and went above and beyond what was necessary to help some of them through a crisis, whether it was a personal crisis or a financial crisis. So he took it personally. So there was a lot going on in that first spring training. And then there was a big trade. Cepeda, who was the heart and soul during those two pennant years, was traded to Atlanta for Joe Torre. So of the guys that uh, that were easy to talk to or to, or, or to get to know, Joe was probably the easiest, especially when I came up later in the year. Uh, we had a small charter. We were one of the few teams that chartered. Uh, we had a smaller charter. It was United Airlines. And we had to double up in seats and uh, to double up with a veteran who had been there all those years. And uh, there was a certain, certain way to do this, and you'd have to almost ask permission. I did, and Joe invited me to sit next to him. And uh, he told me a lot of stories. He told me a lot of things that happened in baseball. And immediately it was Joe who educated me on a lot of things that uh, one learns when they're 20 years old coming up to the big leagues for the first time. He showed me the ropes. Jerry, this is A.J. Carter. He talked about hey, Gus- A.J. Hi. You talked about Gussie Bush. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, this is the day before agents, really. Uh, can you talk a little about your relationship with the owner of the team, the players and the owners, and again, how that would play out a couple of years later uh, when you had a little dispute over your salary? Well, I really didn't have a relationship with him. Uh, he would come down to spring training, I think, every year and visit with the players, those he knew, and then he'd get to know the new ones that had come up through the system. But not this particular year because of the probability of a labor strike. Uh, but going back in history in the early 60s, Bush had noticed that there was no place for the black players uh, and the Spanish players to live in the St. Petersburg area. So he went and rented out two hotels in the St. Petersburg area just to house the players and guys who had, well, earned enough money to live on the beach or take their family to a nicer place said, wait a minute, this is a this is a team-building thing. We're going to stay at the hotel with everybody else. And it turned out to be a bonding situation among the players and the families uh, that allowed them to live for six weeks in a, in, in a large group. And some of the, the wives and some of the people that were down there were teachers. And they went ahead and talked to the teachers back in some of the kids' schools and helped uh, with the kids, with their lessons for the times that they were down in spring training. And then at mealtime, there were some wives who prepared uh, a dish, others who prepared another dish, and on given days, there would, be, um, there would be a communal dinner for everybody and their family in the organization, everybody that was at spring training. So in, in one unselfish act, Gussie Bush had brought his team together and it paid dividends for that ball club during the 1960s, and I can't help but think that it bonded that team uh, that won not only in 64, but then again in 1967. 
No, AJ mentioned that later on it yeah. might manifest itself, and there were two two reasons why you were traded. One was over money, right. not a lot, and the other was facial hair. But that causes you to be traded, and it was a, a trade that you know the the Cardinal fans would lament for many years because you would go on to win 198 more games, you know, after leaving the Cardinals, where Scipio Sphinx and Lance uh, Clemens, I think, may have went on to win a combined nine games in their big league career. You played two seasons for the Astros, playing under three managers, Harry Walker, Salty Parker, and Leo DeRocher. Leo and you didn't have the best of relationships. In fact, in Leo's book, 1975, Night Skies Finished Last, he referred to you by name as one of the biggest a-holes of all time. As I mentioned, that book came out in 1975, and, and you're in the midst of your career. This is long before Twitter and social media and ESPN. But I'm wondering, how much did that quote in that book have an effect on you? When you came into visiting towns, was that something reporters would ask you about? And I, I know years later, you know, there was a, a little bit of mending of the fences due to one of your managers as well. Could you share that with us? No, it didn't affect me. Uh, I heard about it. I read it. Because I, I bought the book, and I looked at it, and I go, wow. Uh, considering, considering Leo's history from the time he was a player all the way through his many misadventures as a manager, that was putting me in some rarefied air. Uh, because Leo might have lived that life himself, so it was a case of the pot calling the kettle black. Uh, but the numbers proved this out in the year that I pitched for Leo. I made 40 starts, appeared in 41 games, uh, and now 40 starts is still a record for the Astros, and that's one I doubt if anybody will ever break. I also threw 279 innings for him, so that's about an average of seven innings per start. So things couldn't have been that bad between us. Uh, nonetheless, it was a strained relationship, and when I was asked about it after the season, you know, I made a comment about Leo that uh, wasn't very complimentary. Leo heard about it, was writing a book, and then took it to the next level. And it took about, oh, I guess until the late 80s when Leo was retired, living in Palm Springs, and a close friend of Dodger manager Tom Lasorda. Uh, Leo came in, talked to Tom. The discussion came up about me, and Leo and Tom talked about me. And uh, apparently Leo said, you know, can I have a word or two with him when it's convenient? So Tommy sent word for me to come in the office. There was Leo. I didn't know he was there. Uh, we shook hands, and he said, um, Leo said, you know, there's a few things I'd like to say. It, and Tommy said, let me, well, you know, you guys take the office. Let me know when you're finished. He closed the door, and Leo and I cleared the air. So it was, it was good in that sense that uh, both of us had realized that we probably could have handled the situation a little bit better. Uh, but it was also the last time that I saw Leo. So it was one of those rare situations where uh, you don't leave something go until somebody passes away. We got it cleared. We shook hands. Uh, we gave each other a hug, and that was it. That's the last time I saw him. And kudos go to Tom Lasorda for setting that up as well. After the two seasons with the Astros, you're sent to Danny Murtaugh's Pirates. So you look early on in your career, Shandy's, DeRosha, Murtaugh. Those are pretty big names when it comes to managers. You also would go on to play for Chuck Tanner, Tommy Lasorda, Pete Rose, Jim Fergosi, Jeff Torborg, Tom Treblehorn, and Jim Leland. If you were to take the best parts from those guys to make a, one super manager, which traits would you take from which guys? Boy, that's tough. That's 15 different managers. <laughs> and to try to evaluate 
uh, in that context, that's a tough thing to do. Uh, but I'm going to try it from a different point of view and, and tell you something that I see from the inside looking out. Uh, each of them were qualified as managers. Each of them had an, uh, enough knowledge in the game to control a team, to handle a team. However, this is where things are separated. Not all of them had good teams. Some had to work quite a bit with what they had, and the results that they produced weren't quite as good as what, well, management hoped they would. Uh, in other cases, such as the Dodgers, uh, the Dodgers were able to bring in some players that were needed. And Lasorda, to his credit, was able to add that person to a roster. A lot of egos on that roster because there were some guys who were pretty good. And he was able to get all of them pushing and pulling in the same direction. And it produced a number of teams that, if they didn't win it, they were always in contention in September. Uh, the same thing could be said about a couple of other managers, Danny Murtaugh. I don't think you mentioned his name. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was yeah, the Mark, first one. Mark actually the first, first one. First one, yeah. Okay, there you go. So, well, Danny Murtaugh was much the same way, but he had a totally different style. Uh, Chuck Tanner, he had an aggressive kind of style, always positive, and he was able to, to take that Pirates team to a world championship in 1979. Pete was a pretty good manager. He was a player's manager all the way. And though they didn't produce as much as I think Pete would have liked them to, uh, they were still in the hunt. Uh, Tom Treblehorn at, at Milwaukee, uh, it was tough for him because they, they were hindered because they couldn't bring in a free agent. Somebody put them over the top. And the Angels, Gene Mock was an excellent manager in himself, but uh, once again, they could never get the right combination of players uh, to take them to the promised land. They got close. They got close a couple of times, but there was, there was some heartbreak as far as that was concerned. Now, Jim Leland, one of the best. I was only with him for a month, but Jim Leland did something that i never seen any manager do. He made it a point every day to try to talk to as many players as he could. If nothing more than saying, how you feeling today, how's things? Uh, and, and through these conversations that were simply got to know the guys, their families, they say, how's your brother doing, or how's your mom doing? Everything okay back there in your hometown? And he would know that. So uh, it, was, it was a pleasure playing for him. But you also knew that Jim Leland was in control. And he had his dust up with Barry Bonds a year or so later in spring training, and he took care of it. And everybody knew that he was in charge, and he used it as a situation that brought that team together and kept them winning. And he went on with other teams, managed them, and got them to the top. So uh, you take a look at 15 different guys during the course of my 22-year career. Every one of them, like I said, was qualified. Each of them had their own distinct personality traits that made them good and made them qualified to be a major league manager. It's unfortunate that some of the guys didn't have the talent that other guys did, but uh, that's the way the game shakes out. We're speaking with Jerry Royce, 22 years in the Major League's World Series champ. It's so interesting that you mentioned Gene Mock, because that's back-to-back weeks now. Jerry Naren also right. pointed to Gene Mock as being a shame that he never well, won. Well, Gene Mock had this reputation of right. being, you know, the, well, that 64 the, team 64, is what 64 did. 64 team, you know, the, the master, the guy who could outthink everybody, but then everybody comes right. back to 64. You, know, right. you, you mentioned, you know, the Dodgers and, and Tommy Lasorda. You're traded to the Dodgers from the Pirates after six years with the Pirates uh, for Rick Roden. Uh, it's so interesting. You, you have 
a career year in 1980, uh, one of the best seasons of your career. 18 wins, only six losses. You lead the majors in shutouts with six. You also throw a no-hitter against the San Francisco Giants on June 27th. The ironic thing is those Dodger teams were known for the vaunted infield of Garvey, Lopes, Russell, and Say. This no-hitter is just one of ten in Major League Baseball history in which a pitcher did not walk or hit a batter, but whose perfect game bid was foiled by a fielding error. Bill Russell committed a throwing error in the first inning. Take us through a pitcher's mind as the innings start to roll and you get closer and closer to a no-hitter. And what what is that feeling? Well, let's, 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 what is that feeling when Bill North hits a comebacker to you to end the game? Well, that, that's a lot in one sentence to <laughs> yeah. cover. Let's see what I can do here. Uh, first of all, I had no idea that I was going to pitch a no-hitter. And when there's an error in the first inning, uh, you, you don't get that any kind of consideration. You just say you got to get out of the out of the inning and let that be that. So no hits in the first inning. In fact, the first four or five innings were rather ordinary. Uh, then at the same time, the club's putting some runs on the board. Ultimately, the Dodgers... Uh, gave me eight-run lead, and they gave me something to work with. And with each, uh, with every next out, uh, it was just one out closer to it. One thing that I did notice, and it took some years of introspection before I realized this, but in normal ball games, when I had a shutout going in a big lead, sometimes I'd experiment with a hitter and and try a different sequence or see what kind of reaction I get from a different pitch, maybe a different location, or maybe a different sequence. But when you're pitching a no-hitter, you got every pitch is important. You don't want to lose a no-hitter on your third or fourth best pitch. So instead of pitching as I normally would, I pitched for the no-hitter and made each pitch as if it were the final out of the ball game. Uh, because even with a perfect pitch, somebody can bloop one or hit nub one off the end of the bat, and it dies in that high grass, a candlestick, and there you go, it's over. So uh, it was a different point of view pitching a game when you had no, you haven't given up any hits. So I pitched for the no hitter. How much do you remember? Think back in your mind about the play in the first inning where Russell <laughs> made the error. What happened there? Do you remember that? Yeah, it was a routine ground ball. He one-hopped it over to first. Normally, Garvey catches it, but it hit Garvey in the heel of the glove on one hop, bounced out, and that was it. You know, in looking back at that game, when I wrote my book, and I'm going to segue into that in a little bit here, uh, I I published my autobiography in 2014, Bring in the Right-Hander, and I discussed this extensively about Russell and the air. Uh, What it did was it shifted the batting order. It was Jack Clark, who was safe on the air, and Clark, who had an injury or injured himself while running out that ground ball, had to be taken out of the ball game. Uh, one at bat later. Now, Clark, it hit me pretty well. And if it gotten into the later innings, Clark was one of those guys that would, that would step up to the occasion, as you know, in 1985, like he did against the Dodgers, when a member for the Cardinals. But Clark came out of the ball game, it once again shifted the batting order. It put somebody else in the outfield that wasn't quite the hitter against me. I think it was Jim Wolford. So it was a lineup that was less because Clark had injured himself running out the ground ball that Russell threw over to first base and committed the error. So inadvertently, Russell's air had set up the dynamics to pitch the no-hitter. There's an argument you could make for that. 
That's, that's really straight <laughs> the way you can look at that. That is crazy. 1981, you go 10 and 4, career low, 2.30 ERA, strike short in season. You win two postseason games, including one which you outdueled Ron Guidry 2 to 1 in game five of the 81 World Series. The Dodgers go on to win that World Series. Winning a championship in LA or New York brings about some special opportunities other cities might not get. The 69 Mets got to go on the Ed Sullivan show to sing You Gotta Have Heart. You, along with Jay Johnstone, Steve Yeager, and Rick Monday, also known as the Big Blue Wrecking Crew, performed We Are the Champions on The Tonight Show and on the TV show Solid Goal, hosted by Andy Gibb and Marilyn McCoo. Go out and Google it. Trust me, it's worth the you know, well, five, ten minutes. I, I, I watched it. Yeah, uh, I posted do, it on my... Do you watch it again? Ever watch it, Jerry? And would you and, want to have it pulled from YouTube or left there? And how much fun was it doing Carson? Well... <laughs> I will uh, let me let me put out this caution to all your <laughs> listeners across the world. Once you see this, you can't unsee it. Okay, so there you go. You're on your own. You've got your warning. Right. For us to do that on the Tonight Show was one of those things. It was a phone call, and Jay, Jay Johnstone happened to know somebody in Los Angeles that could put the deal together, and we had just done the Friday night show called Well Fridays. And we were in the ABC parking lot studios in Los Angeles. And on the phone, we had to sing uh, to the guy who was doing the charts for the record that was going to be recorded on Sunday so that he could get everything done. He could get the instrumental backing track all set up so that we could come in and destroy all the good that he had done (laughs) by singing. But we were able to do it. He put it together. A record was put out on that following Monday. And we went on the Carson show after rehearsing all day Monday, and none of us had any kind of experience in this. So we go on the Carson show, and after a, a rehearsal, it was like studying for a final exam in college. We go on the Carson show to a screaming crowd, and and performed. So now that is a video that somebody ought to see because you had four guys in there, and boy, it was the proverbial monkey with the football trying to figure out how to do something with it. We had no idea what we were doing. We were fumbling. Boy, do we have a good time doing it. Who did the Four Seasons like choreography? Uh, the one version I watched, I think, was the other show. Yeah, it's a solid yeah, goal. Yeah. Yeah. By the it's, time we got to Solid Gold, solid we had gold, it down. Yeah. We had done it <laughs> yeah. on the Merv Griffin show. Uh, we did it on the Mike Douglas show, all within the course of that week. So by this time, uh, the rehearsal had stuck in. We'd done it once or twice before... Uh, we we walked through it before we did um, Solid Gold. We did we taped that about nine o'clock on a Saturday morning in Hollywood, and what it was was one of those disjointed things where Solid Gold, the producers, put together uh, videos. They I guess it was lip synced by everybody, and you came in, you did your performance, uh, you walked through it once so they could get their camera angles, and that was it. And then we, uh, he said, okay, it's time to record. And that's when Andy Gibb and Marilyn McCoo went into their introduction. So we were done by 10 o'clock. The show was over for us, but other groups were coming in. We had gone out of the dressing room, and they pulled the nameplate Big Blue Wrecking Crew off the door and put Sheena Easton, who was coming in after we were, to perform on not that show, but a show that was scheduled later in, um, in the series. So for us, it was a week of being a rock star. I tell you, and after a week, we, we had had enough. We had to go back to our day jobs, and we're glad to do it. That rock and roll lifestyle would have killed us. 
Awesome stuff. Before we let you go, you mentioned the book. Let's give it a plug. Where can people get a hold of Bringing the Right-Hander, my 22 years in the major leagues? You can probably get it on Amazon and get it for a pretty good price. I haven't checked recently, uh, but there's some used copies. And uh, usually with used copies, you don't know what you're getting. So uh, there's a possibility you can get it there. But the best place, and this is, uh, this is the tip of the week, I guarantee you, the best tip you're going to give out this week. If you want a personally signed, inscribed copy, go to jerryroyce.com and follow the links and buy yourself one there. It's going to cost you a little bit more, but it's going to be new. I'm the one that handles it. I'm a one-man operation here, and usually I get it out within 24 hours, and the person, the purchaser gets it within a week as I put it through the US, good old U.S. mail. Uh, it's twenty seven ninety five on Amazon right now. So, uh, you, <laughs> oh, is you, it? yeah, yours is the tip of the week. Definitely go to your website. And I have to tell you, when I get it, Jerry, I, I'm going to order one. It's going to go right next to my 1981 numbered poster that you sold for cystic fibrosis that I actually have an autographed 1981 <laughs> blue poster with you, and they were numbered and and hand you know personalized. So I'll, I'll now I'll have my second you, personalized. You downsized. Jerry Royce item. You didn't. Uh, you no, kept I the poster. I did keep okay. the poster. So. I I just wanted to let you know that a uh, longtime fan, and we really appreciate you coming on with us tonight. Well, guys, AJ okay. and Mark, it was fun talking to you, and I hope the listeners had a good time. Uh, give a look on Facebook. You can follow me there. I usually post a story once a week, and some of those stories have appeared in the book. I've retold them, and there's always some pictures, many pictures you haven't seen because I've dipped into those transparencies and put together a nice collection of pictures that have been unpublished. So I post those once a week. And also, and every Wednesday, I post a rock and roll yep. story yeah. talking about hits of the late 50s and early 60s, something you haven't read. It's a multimedia presentation. And if you're a rock and roller who's somewhere around 70 years old like I am, you'll get a chance to read about something that happened, well, back in your high school days. It's, it's an awesome follow for sure, one of the best on social media. Before we let you go, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but World Series prediction, who and in how many? Dodgers and six. Okay. okay. Well, we'll hold you to it. You Thanks, heard it Jerry. Here. You got you it. You heard it here first. You got Jerry Royce, 22 years in the majors, 1981 World Series champ.